Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. The word legend is overused. Todd Rundgren is a legend. He is uh, a recording artist of the highest order. And uh, as a record producer has just produced um, a, a litany of albums. It's it's sort of staggering to think about. You know, uh, if someone produced just XTC Skylarking, that would be enough or Bad Out of Hell, that would be enough. Uh, or Psychedelic Furs album, or then in the middle of all, you know, before all that, uh, suddenly the, the guy produces uh, a word American band. So, but there's, and I'm leaving out many, many of them. Um, and as a recording artist has had uh, just massive uh, artistic uh, success. And um, it's someone I've been, whose who's sort of creative life I've been fascinated by for a long time. So Todd, thanks for being here, man. Oh, my pleasure. You, you know, it's funny, the last time that I saw you, we were in a room together and it was like, I think 1995. It was me, you and Paul Schaefer. And uh, because I was the A&R guy before I did this life, I was the A&R guy on that Paul Schaefer record. Ah, oh, God. Oh, you're talking about the world's most dangerous which, band. Which is like, um, for me, one of the oddest and most ill-conceived things like I'd ever been a part of. And somehow we were all wrangled into this vision together. And I remember standing in a studio with you and, and back then, you know, the way your deals were record companies, we didn't even get to be around you, which was great. And I've read your book and I understand all of it, but, but that one, even as fucked up as that was, you invited me one day, you and Paul did. And I, I remember all of us looking at each other, like, what are we, what's going on here? <laughs> well, it, it was a curious time in the life of the band because they were moving from uh, NBC to CBS. Yes. And all the while that we're working on this record, um, Dave is in these furtive kind of <laughs> negotiations about, you know, where he's going to land. So the band is in a sort of limbo. Um, they're not doing the TV show because, you know, the TV show is moving from one, uh, uh, one network to another. So uh, there was a lot of um, discussion about what the band should be called and what the name of the record was, you know, because everything was in limbo at the time regarding the show. Um, but at least it was a chance, you know, for us to... Um, to work together and actually do something that in the end I thought was a lot of fun, although it wasn't as well promoted as it could have been. Let's say. Oh yeah, I would agree with that. But and also though, I remember, and this is, I remember conceptually originally it started with Paul wanting and you all, everyone wanting to do like a, a record where people would, he would bring in these amazing guest vocalists to, to sort of sing these songs. And then instead it just became this, like we had these, this background party conversations and, what what it led me to think about in, in terms of this, and um, you know, you wrote you wrote your memoir, uh, which um, is a great cheat sheet because uh, most, as you know, most people you talk to they don't actually like do the research, but I do the research, so uh, I, I I read the whole book, and the way you decide which projects are worth your time. Throughout the book, you talk about it in many interviews you've given, and it's not always because the music itself is what fascinates you. Can, can you talk about how in living your life as a creative person, you kind of make these binary decisions of in or out before you then 
think conceptually or what that whole thing looks like? Well, I, you know, I've been sort of fortunate. Um, my whole career is in some ways based on a series of lucky coincidences, you know, just being in the right place at the right time. Um, and at first, you know, when I started working for the uh, Albert Grossman organization, you know, I had a pretty clear Dylan's manager. Yeah, I was supposed to help update the roster of artists because Albert had, uh, he was originally a club owner uh, here in Chicago, where I am right now. <laughs> and uh, through that, he booked a lot of, you know, the early folk acts, you know, when in the early 60s, there was a big folk movement. And so a lot of the acts that he had were from that early 60s movement. And even earlier than that, you know, he had like James Cotton, classic blues artist, roster as well. And it was getting to be the late 60s, you know, post Beatles. Um, and they wanted someone who would kind of update the the roster, you know, to make records that sounded more modern. Um, and so at first I was just, they just put me together with just about everybody, you know, that was on the roster. Uh, the most significant project I did early on was Jesse Winchester, because that was produced by Robbie Robertson and that got me stage fright, which was the first really big gig that I had. But you engineered, you engineered the first Jesse Winchester record, right? The one that came out in 70. And then you, that's the one that Robbie produced, Jesse Winchester. Um, yeah, well, Jesse Winchester's first album we did. I was also supposed to produce his second album, but it had an element of sophomore jinx about it in that, you know, all the material from your life goes into the first record. And then the material between the first and second records is like usually not as deep and uh right i understand but wait but when you say the the sort of the hand that luck had in it uh, well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna challenge sort of the, the the place that serendipity plays in anyone's life both good and, and, and bad ways but it does seem to me that you think these things through a bit, or you certainly in the way that you write about them, it seems, and then looking at the whole history of what you've done, it does seem that there are things, some things it's the form, some things it's, uh, instead of the form, some things it's the, the technology available, some things it might be the songs. I mean, how, uh, how do you think about it? Uh, or is it all just an instinct when it's presented to you? Uh, because, uh, as artists saying no or saying yes, I mean, that is one of the things that, that determines what luck's gonna have to play with. Well, um, once I reached the point in my career that I realized that I, I was able to make choices, you know, that I didn't just simply have to do what they gave me, that I had right. options. Um, the album, uh, Something Anything was a turning point right. for me. I realized after I had done it that I was I was operating on a formula more or less. I had developed a songwriting formula, and uh, case in point, I wrote "I Saw the Light" in like twenty. <laughs> the whole thing. You know? That's crazy. Yeah, that's nuts. 
you know, hit single. I thought that's great. It's great to have that formula. But by the time I got to the end of the record, people were making comparisons between me and other artists. Like uh, he's the male Carol King was one of the more common comparisons. And I thought I really like Carol King. She's certainly an influence. I knew about Carol King before most people knew about Carol King. And um, it sort of bothered me because I didn't want to be compared to other people. I wanted to, I wanted to do something that was my own. And so I decided pretty much at that point on that what, whatever it was that I did, it had to be something that somebody else wouldn't do, you know, or that wouldn't get done unless I decided to do it. Um, okay, some point there is Meatloaf. Right. They, yes. They had auditioned for every producer in the business, you know, before they got to me. And it was the weirdness of it that convinced me to do it. The fact that everyone else had turned it down because they didn't hear it in the right way. Me, I heard it as a spoof of Bruce Springsteen, and that was what I was thinking through the entire project. You know, this is a spoof of Bruce Springsteen. Um, it's all the same kind of stuff about motorcycles and switchblades and leather jackets, you know, old 50s iconography. But instead of it being, you know, a young studly guy from New Jersey, it's a big fat guy, you know? <laughs> well, I, I was, I, I, you know, reading that you say that in, in the book, uh, I have, it led me to a couple questions. Uh, one, knowing Jim a little bit, Jim's earnest romanticism uh, was, is really apparent. Like for Jim, even though he understands the humor of it, it seems to me he actually lives in that place. So as a producer, are you putting, in other words, there's a big difference between bad out of hell and I would do anything for love. Uh, I think I, I would do anything for love is a, gr a great record. Amazing. I heard it in the studio before it, it was finished. But it, uh, but there's a, there is a difference in the way the Baroque thing is presented. And do you think that has to do with what, what you saw in sort of dichotomy to what, in juxtaposition to what Jim was intending? Well, uh, I have to admit that Jim never copped to the Bruce Springsteen influence, right. which was quite obvious. But then at one point during the pre-production or when we were working on the record, he took me to a Bruce Springsteen concert. You know, so, you know, that was all something he was in sort of a, a kind of denial about that. But um, the big difference, I guess, you know, from Steinman's uh, standpoint was Again, that kind of, you know, your first work versus your, you know, your sophomore efforts or whatever it is. This was a project that he had been working on for years and years. You know, this, it was originally a musical that he had written for the public theater um, that was based on Peter Pan. And, uh, and that's a thing that has kind of followed him through his entire career, trying to get that particular vision realized and it ultimately became the musical that came out a couple of years ago albeit at a completely enervated version of it because um it just took so long to get going and there were all of these you know hassle between meatloaf and steinman about you know the image and how closely it should be associated with meatloaf and 
and all of that business. And in the end, what eventually came out was a, probably a pretty watered down version of what he intended. But Bat Out of Hell, the original Bat Out of Hell was installment one of that whole vision that he had, you know, which was really more of a theatrical thing than a, a musical thing in a way. Well, it's about the romantic, the way it's similar to Bruce, right, is in his mind, it's the romantic salvation available to you through rock and roll. Mm -hmm. But for you, this is the question, like, so, but for you, it was, a, there's a goof element. For him, there really wasn't. And what happens in that, what happens in the sort of, at the intersection of those two ideas? Like, were you uh, articulating to Meatloaf and to Jim, uh, hey, I think that there's something arch about this that, I think this is actually like taking the piss out of something or are you just doing that without sort of talking about it? I'm not, um, I was never trying to impose that. It just seemed that way naturally to me, you know? Yes, I sure. mean, it, it, that was Jim's thing, you know, like me, what's the highest note you can sing? Well, we're going to hit that note. Right. <laughs> you know? right. The highest note you can sing and then I'm going to write for that note, I'm gonna write backwards from that note because everything's gonna wind up there at the highest note that you can possibly sing. And uh, and at some points, you know, I think that, um, you know, Jim's vision could have, and his insistence on doing it a certain way could have sunk the entire project before it ever happened. Because when they came to me, they had a record deal. They just had no producer. Right. And um, I think once they got me to sign on and then Jim began articulating his full vision for the record and all that it entailed, I think the, his label started balking at it, you know, at how much it was going to cost to make the record. And so the day before we're supposed to go into the studio, Milo comes to me and says, I want to get off my label. You know, right. <laughs> like, I said, wait a minute, the label pays for the record and I'm not your manager, so I can't tell you what to do, but um, it's we're going to have to be really creative if you do that. And essentially what I did is I asked Bearsville to put the bill for it and you know put it on my tab and they would get right of first refusal. And then to almost confirm what a left field sort of project that was, they turned it down, Bearsville turned it down, and Warners, who distributed Bearsville, turned it down as well. And everybody else that they took it to turned it down until they found like a little label called Cleveland International and one guy who believed in the record. And it was his belief in the record that actually pushed it over the, pushed it over the line because he released one single and nothing happened. Then he released another single and nothing happened. But he had such faith that he released a third single. And by then, everything started happening. Did you know, do you know in those, um, when you write Hello, It's Me, and I know you recorded it twice, but when you like write that song or when you cut and mix two out of three ain't bad, do you know, does some part of you know, oh, this is different. This is, uh, this is, this connects in some very deep way and is going to work or is it all one long thing to you? Well, in terms of any one particular record, we were all in those days, you know, 
uh, living by a different set of rules than people nowadays. Sure. Um, it was still substantially the age where if you wanted a personal listening experience, you had to do it in your own home because yes. the Sony Walkman was yet to be, you know, a yes. ubiquitous device. So uh, listening to a record was still a quality time experience. You know, people would find a sweet spot and sit there and listen to a whole album all the way through. Yes. So we would think in those terms. We think yes. of that greater listening experience. Um, nowadays, of course, people, the music is often background to some other activity. They very rarely sit down and focus on like a half an hour's worth of music or an hour's worth of music. It's usually a couple of tunes here, you know, pick and choose, you know, what you want to listen to and slot it into a busy lifestyle that involves, you know, tweeting while you're listening and that sort of thing. Yes. So, yeah, we were, you know, I think everybody was making records and in those days was more conscious of the greater listening experience, you know? And so while each tune, you know, requires its focus to be successful on its own, you know, we were thinking of this as a, um, a theatrical presentation, something that's meant to be listened to as a whole thing. Yeah. That, that tracks completely for, for me. But I guess what I'm asking is, as an artist, do you allow yourself, when you write Hello, It's Me, a song that's been important to people now for 50 years, Todd, you know, a song that that's still, when it comes on the road, I'll tell you, still, when that song comes on whatever the device I have, it's a moment that I stop everything else and I pay complete attention. Um, but all versions of that song, the re your record, your solo version of it, um, you know, it's one of those things that just, uh, cuts through whatever the noise of the world is and brings you into this uh, connection with what you're singing about. And, and I guess the question I have is when, uh, when you do something like that, just at the writing stage, or I don't know if you then played it for one of your friends or bandmates in the beginning, but when you've written it, do you say like, oh, that one's different? Or is that one just, hey, on to the next one. I've written that, now let's write the next one. How does that land for you? Um, uh, the process isn't necessarily one way, although for me, it has evolved. Um, as I say, back in the days of like something, anything, I could just moon June spoon it yeah, out. You know? Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and when I realized that, I started investing more thought in, into the material. I realized that my internal musical world was much more varied than what I was actually writing. So by the time I got to the next album, it was more of a sonic experiment, trying to just imprint anything that came into my head directly onto the tape. Is that a wizard? Is that when you're making a wizard? <clears throat> a wizard, a true story. Yeah. People should read Patti Smith's, if, if people haven't read Patti Smith's review of that record, it's amazing, you <laughs> gotta find it. I tweeted it today and, and it's worth finding. She she seemed to get on your wavelength for, for, for that one. but. Um, but yeah. But to the end of the individual songs, you know, like for instance, Hello, It's Me isn't the best example because it's the very first song I ever wrote. So um, it was, and it was kind of like, I had never really written a whole song before. What do I do now? I had some chords that I copped from, um, from a 
Jimmy Smith record, <laughs> actually, jazz organist, who just like he was improvising a uh, an introduction to a song in a live gig. And I just I figured out the chords on the guitar and they became the chords to the song. And then I figured, what do I write about? I just write about what everybody writes about, the girl who broke your heart. Right. So, <laughs> you know, and I had one of those. So uh, the only the most dishonest aspect about it was that in the context of the song, I broke up with her instead of what really happened. She broke up with me. <laughs> so, yes. But then she called uh, you and tried to come to your concert years later. So yeah, uh, yeah. there's a measure yeah. of, of. I realized that that probably was for the best in the long run. Uh, it did give me a lot of inspiration for, uh, for lyrics. Oh, yeah, it's interesting. You don't talk in the book very much about the writing. Pro you talk about the making of stuff a lot and you talk about what the why of some stuff. But actually, you don't really talk about the way you wrote certain songs or, or where. That's why like the, uh, I'm so interested in, in the do the melodies just show up for you once you start with the is that mm. the part that comes very naturally? It seems to the, the melodies seem to come fairly easily, but the more songs you write, the harder it is to come up with an original lyric idea. <laughs> you know, that's the, the biggest challenge. But, you know, music is essentially the most plagiaristic art form that we have because we're working with such a palette. You know, there's eight notes in, you know, or 12 notes, you know, Western 12 tone scale. And you usually don't use all of them. You know, you only use a few of them. And yeah. so it's inevitable that you're going to be copying somebody else's melody at some point, just by the mathematics of it. So music is really the art of obfuscation. You know, it's like hiding where you got it from somehow. You know? I love <laughs> and, that. Yeah. I get that completely. Yes. And, uh, and as I say, as time has gone on, you know, the process can take any number of forms. It can be like, okay, I'm going to sit down and write, but it usually doesn't take that kind of form. It's usually me thinking about it for a very long time. And then it reaches a point of, you know, it's, it's time to be born. <laughs> and, then, and then it all comes out very quickly. It's like, I'll, I'll write the lyrics out right before I sing them and the whole process will take less than an hour. That's amazing. Because it's just become a thing that I have turned over to my subconscious at this point. I'll just think about what I might do and pack it in there, but never sit down and start like plunking things out until I feel like it's fully cooked already in my head. Well, yeah, I love that. That's that thing Hemingway always said when he's done writing for the day. You know, he wouldn't write again. He wouldn't allow himself to even consciously think about the work until the next day when he sat there. So his, he was trying to engage the subconscious. Yeah, exactly. And that works to the point that there are songs that have written themselves, literally written themselves. Like, I dream them, fully realized. Like, Bang the Drum All Day is a song I dreamed, fully realized. You know, I didn't have the whole of it, but I had the, oh, I don't want to work. I just want to bang on the drum. I was fully realized in a dream. I woke up went down to the studio and captured as much as I could remember of it. And there have been other songs like that. Some of them extremely complicated things that I wouldn't have consciously written, but for the fact that, you know, I keep shoving things into my subconscious and it does the work for me. 
you shove them in there by means of, I mean, in the book you, you talk about peyote and all that stuff, but I think what you're talking about here is you shove them in by your curiosity of going out, listening, watching, thinking about things, and then just letting those things marinate however they, they do. Is, am I, am I uh, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah. It's kind of getting in, getting into a, you know, a, into generally like a musical head, you know, thinking about music, but not necessarily always making the music just, yeah, marinating <laughs> essentially, you know, and uh, it just, uh, it, it seems to work. It works actually sometimes to uh, to a certain detriment because I'm unable to um, co-write with people. I can, for instance, write something when I'm alone and then send it to them to add something to. But right. I've had some of the most embarrassing kind of episodes in my <laughs> life when another songwriter will come visit me and say, okay, Let's give it a try. And we just sit there looking at each other, you know, and nothing happens. So all the time you and Robbie spent together, you never looked at each other. You and Robbie would never sat down and were like, hey, let's write a song together because it's just not the way it works for you. It's fascinating. No, it doesn't. Uh, it, it's it's too personal. It, in some ways, it's too personal to me. You know, it's got to be something that I feel is revelatory of me. Like the value in my work is that I am psychoanalyzing myself for the benefit of everybody else. I get an idea in my head and turning it into a song is a way of objectivizing it and giving me the opportunity to look at it and examine it and say, mm -hmm, that's, a, that's an interesting idea or wow, that's a stupid idea. Why am I thinking that? You know, but in any case, I think the reason why my music impacts those people who, um, who to this day, you know, still await, you know, new music and invest time into trying to understand it, uh, because I think they appreciate it because eventually that'll work for them as well. You know, I'm, there's something that bothers me. I write a song about it, maybe arrive at some sort of resolution through the song. Somebody else hears the song, same thing is bothering them. And the song gives them resolution to the thing that's bothering them. So I feel it's important, you know, for me to be completely honest in what I write about. Uh, to me, their artists fall into two categories. They are revelatory or, or revelatory or obfuscatory you know uh there are artists who want to create an image of themselves that isn't really them but it's but it's part of the product the brand and stuff like that so whenever they are in the context of you know performance or being interviewed or in the public or whatever it is they adopt this persona and the words that they write for the songs are from this persona, not necessarily from themselves. And I have always been, you know, a revelatory artist. I'm most interested in writing about the things that I actually think about, rather than trying to figure out what somebody else wants to hear and write about that. Do you think that the, 
obfuscatory artists are necessarily doing that to that, or is it just a way of uh, expressing, you know, in the third person as opposed to the first person or something, you know, is it, because the other way you broke it down in your book, you talk about a uh, entertainer, performer, or artist. And I, I would suggest that like Dylan has been both of those things, right? Dylan has been revelatory and obfuscatory depending on sort of like the, where he's seeing himself in the world at a given moment, or, or do you think it's one or the other where it's binary? Well, you know, I think an artist has a right to do anything they want. <laughs> you know, uh, they ultimately will have, it'll be your name on it, you know, and you'll have to um, bear the um, bear the outcome of whatever it is that you've done. But point of fact, you know, the music business has gotten, I don't necessarily want to say cynical, but Music has been a gate, uh, let's say a gateway drug, <laughs> you know, music. There are a lot of artists or names that you are familiar with. And you first heard of them because they made music, but you continue to hear of them because they do things that are not musical. They design shoes, you know, they get in a movie, you know, they do commercials for something, you know, the music suddenly becomes less important. Uh, the personality is what's most important. So, you know, it's a way to make a living. It doesn't necessarily, I guess there's probably some sort of term that, that categorizes that as art. For me, you know, art is, is self-expression. For other people, art is fooling others <laughs> into believing something, you know? Yeah. Uh that makes, I see that distinction, but it's funny, right? I mean, the Beatles who mattered so much to you, you know, they were making movies too. They were, they were, they were set right from the beginning. Yeah, they but they were, were pretty good at it. <laughs> right. Well, Richard, um, what's his name? Richard, the director was Richard. I'm just blanking on his yeah. name right now. And no, they were good at being in the movies about themselves, but you know, when they made Magical Mystery Tour, that was a bunch of junk, you know? <laughs> so, yes, and you just can separate uh, out yeah. those. No, I mean, it's a fascinating them, thing. That... If you left them to their own devices, you know, they were just as likely to come up with junk as they were to come up with good stuff. White album, case in point. So, so you make the two Nas albums, and then, or the Nas, I know you, you consider them the Nas, your band, even though the, the article disappeared, but you make those, those albums and that's, is the, and then you make the decision then to go take the engineer job and get on the producing sort of a world. Uh, that seems like a very rational sort of like um, American decision that like, well, I got to keep the income coming in and this is like, I'm good at this stuff. And the, uh, it, it's odd because you know, two years later, you make this album that changes your whole life and establishes you forever. What was going through your head when you decided to do that instead of just being the recording artist? Well, again, this is a part of you know the fortunate series of events that <laughs> occurred to me. You know that uh, I have never in my life 
known exactly how much money I had. I have always had an accountant or business manager or someone else to worry about that. And the only thing I ever expect to hear from them is, you're okay, you can relax or work harder. You know, <laughs> that's, a, that's the only thing I know about, you know, the money. So I never do anything just for the money. I've got somebody else to worry about that. You know, so it's put me in a fortunate position of doing the things that I want to do, not necessarily the things that I have to do. Um, and people always wonder, well, what, you know, how come you never became a stylist as an artist, you know, establish something that you could leverage for the rest of your career? It's because I never had to. It's because I was a record producer and making so much money as a record producer that I never had to be worried about, you know, how many records I was selling. And, and was the record producing job. So like when you describe taking the New York Dolls job, which is it's hilarious reading that you basically didn't think David Johansson was a very good singer. Johnny Thunders annoyed you, uh, but you were like, all right, I'll do it. And that struck me for someone who is like such a, a rigorous artist and cares so much on certain level. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, you're, you're being a little bit flip in the book. It's part of the tone of the book, but on the other hand, <laughs> um, but on the other hand, it, you're, you didn't say, holy shit, did it, the New York Dolls changed you know, the New York Dolls affected me so much I had to go produce their record. You're just like, so that does strike me as almost, um, well, almost a little mercenary in a way. Well, it, that wasn't my motivation for doing the New York Dolls. It's, I'm not sure whether I mentioned it in the book, but I had been living in New York City and I bought a house in upstate New York. Yes. Decided that New York City was too much for me. It just, you know, it it was draining the energy just trying to get across town and stuff just too busy and noisy and whatever so i bought a house in upstate new york and i realized that i was going to move up there spend most of my time uh upstate and then there's this whole scene happening in new york city at the same time as i'm preparing to move which was at the which was called the new york sound it was not called punk rock nobody called it that um, that was a term that actually came from England and, uh, and the Sex Pistols, who were primarily influenced by the New York Dolls. But that's yes. the other end of the story. Well, I love when you bring it all the way back, who the Dolls were influenced by, and then you take it right back to the Stones, then you take it right back to Muddy Waters. It's great. Yeah. That exactly. Muddy Waters is the, basically ends up in the Sex Pistols. It's funny. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, you know, the, the whole thing, the sensibility, you know, it wasn't... We had gone through a whole bunch of, you know, musical phases. Uh, we started with, let's say we started with the Beatles or the British Invasion when we suddenly realized what could be done with the, with the LP. It was the maturation of the LP form because before that, people bought singles until there were enough singles. And then you put all the singles into an album. The Beatles were the first kind of like album artists when they put out Sgt. Pepper and there were no singles on it. Um, so then it became like the golden age of radio, FM radio suddenly started eclipsing AM radio, AM radio was singles, FM radio was albums, album cuts and whole album sides and things like that. So, um, we evolved from the Beatles 
suddenly the Beatles, one of the things about the Beatles was their eclecticism, their musical eclecticism and how yes. they absorb genres and resynthesize them into Beatles music and stuff like that. So suddenly musicianship was important again. And that evolved into the prog rock movement of the early 70s, you know, yes. when it was important to be a player and stuff like that. Sometimes the songs were just something that was an excuse for a lot of playing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I certainly lived through that phase as well with Utopia. And then as we moved through the 70s, uh, that sort of musicianship went out of fashion as disco came in. Disco was four on the floor, boom, 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 boom. The dumbest, stupid music that you could possibly have, you know? <laughs> so, and, and it became sort of formulaic, you know, there was a formula behind it. So it was almost inevitable that a, mu that a musical movement would arise that emphasized a lack of musicianship. And that was what the New York sound was and what punk rock eventually became. If you learn how to play your instrument too well, you were a poser. You know, right. you weren't really in that life. You weren't, you didn't, yeah. yeah. You were yeah. not supposed to learn how to play that well. You were supposed to just learn the bare minimum and the rest was enthusiasm. <laughs> right, and, and then and then television and the talking heads came along and changed that. But like for that moment, right? Because television were at the end. Yeah, of it, then we moved were, into new waves, you know, then we yeah, moved then into it, new wave. And a whole but, but the dolls, but so that's what attracted you to the dolls really was just to play in that sandbox of. Yeah, it was, you know, I was looking, I. I was leaving the city and so I said, I want to do a little Valentine to New York City before I leave. Let me do one of these bands. And the Dolls were the band that everyone thought was most representative of the scene. And, um, and so I did the Dolls. <laughs> what, do you, what do you get out of producing that, uh, other than the financial part of it, what, what, what do you get out of it as a, as a, as an artist, as opposed to spending all that time, you know, writing songs, making records, touring, what do what do you as an artist get from the experience of working with other artists producing? Well, because my attitude about music is eclectic and my attitude about production and who I will produce is equally eclectic. I always learn something musical when I'm working with uh, another artist. Often I will, when I first started production, I didn't realize, for instance, what the role of, you know, of psychologist was. Oh, know, I had that as a question to ask you. I had that as a question <laughs> to ask you because you don't really talk about that part of it in the book at all. And I, I had a question to ask you, which is how do you feel about that aspect of being a shrink to the artist. Yeah. It was, it was something it took me a while to learn, you know, and I had to burn through a couple of artists <laughs> before I had, you know, uh, before I realized, you know, that it's not about how I feel, you know, it's about how they feel <laughs> like that, you know? Uh, yeah. I really, I work for them. Uh, I make a clear, I make a very clear distinction that I work for the band. I don't work for the label. Yes, I work for them because the label is only loaning them money to make the records. You yes. know, they're the go-between between you and your audience, and so um, so I always work for the band, and I do whatever I can um, in the best interests of the project. 
for the act. And it doesn't always seem like that to them. You know, sometimes it seems like I am lording it over them by trying to, you know, overly encourage them to do things a certain way or whatever. I've had, um, well, I realized after a couple of projects that I don't want to go into the studio with an act unless they've got an album's worth of material. You don't want to go in and get halfway yes. through the record and then suddenly realize, you know, the rest of these songs are not good enough. And now you got to go back to writing again, you know, and so the whole project comes to a grinding halt. You know, so I started vetting all the material before, before going into the studio. And I recall having a meeting with the B-52s uh, yeah. about a prospective project. And when I made that demand, the meeting went very far south. You know, it seemed to them like I didn't trust them to come up with the songs. So um, they took umbrage at the whole idea that I would want to hear all the material before we went into the studio. And so that project never happened. I can understand it from, as I'm sure you can, as an artist, like, you know, you're, you're so used to fighting against any authority figure. And, you know, the way you talk about your dad and then, uh, you know, we're all, as, an, as a, you know, I'm so used, used to, or was coming, fighting with the movie studios who didn't believe in my, our vision or whoever else. You get in that mode that any sort of authority figure, you have to, um, you have to gin up the, the self-belief and be comfortable in your skin that, you could see how you want to be like, but, but man, we, you know, don't, if, if you don't have faith in our ability to spin the spell, but, and you're on the other side going, but I've been burnt. Yeah, I did when I was 30, but I don't now. Right. You know, it's hard. Yeah. Well, the, you know, in, in one sense, you know, each project is, is sort of unique because there is my attitude, which may which may not change that much for me, but every artist comes in with a different uh, level of respect for you. Um, yes. And that can often determine how the project will go. Uh, like for instance, uh, there's a, there was a Canadian band called the pursuit of happiness. Of course. Know. I watched the documentary. Really, yeah. Really great band. And they had a great work ethic and they learned all their material and played it on the road before they went into the studio, you know? So you pretty much knew that you had the material there and the, and the lead singer and writer of the band was a, was a big fan. I knew that going into the project and that's why he asked me, he was a big fan. And that essentially allowed well, it created a situation where there was just no resistance at all to anything that I would suggest to the band. And the end result was we completed the thing in like less than 10 days, you know, which <laughs> is yes. like, bam, done. And, and even the band was thinking, isn't this supposed to take more time than this? <laughs> no, the record was perfect. You know, uh, yes. It, By the way, I didn't mean the documentary. It, the documentary it, I saw was tragically you know. hip, not Pursuit of Happiness. Someone's going to cat. I don't. Uh, but I remember the Pursuit of Happiness record, and actually, I saw that band live, and they were really great. And you love that album that you made with them. Yeah, it was a great album. It had great material. Like I'm an adult now, and all this other, you know, like great song. Um, She's so young, and just one great song after another. Uh, a great kind of lineup as well that was a little different because you had the two girl background singers. 
um, which made for an interesting blend that you didn't often hear in records, a male lead singer and two girls singing background, but rock and roll music, not R&B or anything. Um, so it was, you know, it, it, they were just, you know, super talented and it just all happened great. Then you get a situation like XTC, where yes. you know, one of the guys, one of the principal guys in the band really doesn't want a producer at all. He right. wants to, he wants to run the process. And that's bam, 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 all through the freaking record, you know? Yes. And then when that happens and Skylarking becomes the album that changes their lives, do they say to you, does Andy Partridge pick up the phone and say, hey, dude, you were right? Um, he, has a, he hasn't picked up the phone to me, but he has admitted that he was uh, mistaken about the record, you know? Yeah. I mean, was, a, no, well, sure. he equated his experience of making it with the, with the actual music itself. And there were just so many things that, you know, he felt compromised about. For one, um, Colin, the other songwriter in the band, had never had so much material on a record before. And so he was feeling threatened about that. Um, the fact that, you know, the label had given them an ultimatum and said, you got to get a producer that you will listen to, you know. Yes. And even though he didn't want to listen to me, he realized that the label was not going to let him do otherwise. And, um, and so he equated his experience. He went home to England. Like they, they went home before the album was actually mixed. I mixed it myself because Andy felt so negatively about the entire Amazing. project. And that was something that they never would have done before, you know, leave someone else to mix the record. Um, so they went home and then Andy would tell anyone who listened that it was the crappiest record that, that they had ever made <laughs> because he didn't enjoy himself making it, you know. And, and, and you tell yourself the whole time that you're you're serving him. Actually, the reason you feel justified in chasing down your vision is like a director well, with an actor in a way is you feel like you're protecting. You're actually serving the band is that I'm asking, is that what's in your head? Well, it was, that was my specific mandate. You know, the A&R guy, you know, said, okay, here's a list of producers, pick one of them, you know, and the only producer, I was the only one who any one in the band was familiar with, and that was uh, Dave. Uh, Dave knew who I, who I was because he was a fan, so that was why, how I wound up with the gig. But, the, uh, but uh, Colin and Andy had no idea who I was. That's <laughs> Amazing. But, Obviously, Andy knew you. And our man at the label had told them that un unless something changes, you're done. You're done right. here. Right. And what had been, and what the modus had been before that was that Andy would drive their producers out of the studio. You know, he would be so anal about everything that eventually the producer would, you know, pull out all his hair and leave, or he'd have another gig he'd have to do, something like that. Sure. And Andy would essentially mix the records to death, literally to death, to the point that they were hard to listen to, you know. And, uh, and that was the problem, and that was why they got the ultimatum from their label. When, when one looks at your career, you were so determined as an artist not to conform to do stuff that makes you feel comfortable in your own skin, to express, as you said, all this stuff about who you are and what you are and what you're thinking about, you know, to 
to have it manifested by a band that's set up exactly in the way you see it uh, with the instruments that are exactly right. And so how do you reconcile that with then having to be this figure, um, you know, uh, putting constraints on these artists or uh, at, when you're a producer, how do you trust, I guess, hey, in the end, this is gonna, you know, this is the right thing for, for you, Andy Partridge, be, be, and, and, and I'm here to protect you. It, it seems to me like they're almost at odds, these two ideas that you, you're holding in your head about what it means to be an artist. Well, the, as I said, I've, you know, I have prioritized things in a certain way. And the most important thing is the material. In other words, if you've got good songs, then you know what you're going for. And I feel that my priorities align with audience priorities. In other words, as a listener, the very first thing that people care about is a good song. Yes. They, nobody wants to listen to a great performance of a crappy song. You know, I couldn't <laughs> agree with you more song, on that. Yes. And, and even a half-assed performance of a good song will do, you know. So the 90% of, of the formula is making sure that you have good material to start with. Then you want you want the act to perform it with some sort of enthusiasm, you know, some sincerity, some real belief in their own material. And yes. so the, that's why it would be ideal if they had, say, gone out on the road and performed it in front of an audience yes. a little bit instead of coming into the sterile environment of the studio and figuring out how they want to do it. You know, because, because doing it in front of an audience immediately informs you how it's supposed to be done. You know, right. and, uh, and then the least important thing is actually sound quality. And that's why I put so much um, personal emphasis on learning to engineer even before I became you know, a, a producer. My first projects were kind of more about the engineering than you know, stage fright, I was an engineer. Um, the Jesse Winchester record, I was the engineer. Other things I might've been the producer, but I was still doing the engineering. And, yes. And the reason why that's important is, you know, like, especially like drummers, you know, they come in and you could spend days trying to get them satisfied with the sound, you know, and the drums is a complicated instrument because it's not one instrument. It's like 10 instruments. And so sure. learning how to do that was one of the first things I did, learning how to mic up the drums and make them sound good so that we can move on <laughs> and get some music done. And, and the, uh, and that may be something that's, you know, significantly different in the kind of sessions that I, that I would do. There is very little time spent mocking around with sound. You know, we get right to the music as soon as we possibly can. And when, when you talk about the audience, what you said about your audience is really moving to me. And I, I know it's true. I know the way your audience feels about you. But you also talk about having to basically not think about the sort of commercial prospects of the work when you're doing it, not think about the audience at the same time as you know. So how do you manage that for yourself? Because there's this audience that thinks you're God, they really care, they have festivals, you know, all that shit, right? And you know it and they're, they sustain you in certain ways, yet you're disciplining yourself to not fucking think about it, right? Is it really possible to not think about it? Well, you know, what they expect is that I'm gonna write about me. Right. So, 
if I'm thinking about them, I'm thinking about me <laughs> in a sense, you know. Uh, anything that has, anything that's kind of like affected them or moved them about what I do has to have moved me first. And, you know, I, you know, it's like, I'm open to doing almost any genre, but I really don't like country music. And the sure. reason why I don't like country music is because it's written to effect. You know, it is written to, to affect you a specific way, you know. And it's always, I mean, half the people, most of the people probably, who are making country music grew up in cities, grew up in the Northeast, you know, uh, yeah. or something like that. They, you know, they didn't go to Nashville until they decided they wanted to be a country artist. You know, and then everything about country, you know, is these is the stupid iconography of it. You know, and pretend I'm wearing a cowboy hat. You know, and, well, and the country guys will say you can. The country guys will say you can find a real country guy by the fact that he's wearing a baseball cap, not a cowboy hat. Exactly. You know, uh, but I'm real a, I'm country a, guys. Real country guys don't drive a horse; they drive a tractor. All right. You know? Yeah, but uh, I'm a I'm a huge country music fan. But I'm. Uh, I understand exactly the artists and the kind of country music that you're talking about, but then, you know, you and I could go listen to Lefty, Lefty Frizzell or, or well, Johnny I have to say that I, you know, like I like Bob Wills, you know, yeah, of course, I like old country bebop, you know, yeah. old, you know, jazz swing country that I can get into, you yeah. know, but at at some point, you know, Nashville became the songwriters capital of the world. Yeah, I, so people I, I, just go and they figure out, okay, what's gonna, what's, what do country people want to hear, you know, and uh, and that's it. They don't want, you know, people who who only listen to country music. They want it to be super simple, you know, no complicated issues, please, you know, just make it really easy for me to, to understand about drinking. It's about drinking, it's about your dog and, and your truck. Oh, I would love to hear the album you would make with Steve Earle, for instance. Like if you produce well, Steve, Steve Earle, Earle to me, Steve Earle to me is a real country, real right, country artist. Right. And right. I think you would make an unbelievable record with Steve Earle because he doesn't give a fuck about any of that stuff. Exactly. He's only writing from his personal experience. Exactly. There was, you know, there was a, you know, um, Steve was part of that new country movement. You know, with Lyle and it was Lyle and Dwight Yoakam and, and yeah, Steve and those guys. New country yeah. movement and that was um and that was a hopeful thing, you know. But now now Steve's a DJ, you know. No, I mean, Steve Earl is a radio host now. Although, yes, he's great. By the way, great on Outlaw Country. Uh yeah. I'm 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 not going to argue you off of country country music. I will say that Steve made an album. He just made this album of his son's songs. You know, his son died uh, um, a few months ago and uh, OD'd. And uh, he made an album of his son's songs, which is will break your heart. But the, the album he did before that is from a musical he wrote that got shut down. And uh, it's everything you talk about that you want an artist to do. If you go, it's so the, not the newest one. The one before that, I have a feeling you would find mm -hmm. it pretty heavy. It's a lot of father's. A lot of fathers and sons and missed and, and it's, it's very in, in, intense. Todd, what are you working on now? What's animating you completely now in your life creatively? 
Well, um, I'm here in Chicago. We have collected a uh, crew and a band, and we're doing a virtual tour starting on the 14th. Uh, we're playing 25 shows targeted to 25 cities across the U.S. How cool. Um, they'll all be streamed out of here uh, in Chicago. Uh, it's a big band. The, the basis of it is, um, is a tour that I took out in the late 80s uh, uh, behind an album called Nearly Human. So we're calling us the Clearly Human <laughs> Tour. Who's in the band? Uh, some of it, uh, uh, some of the band is the original members who played uh, this tour back in the late 80s, uh, including Bobby Strickland on sax and Prairie Prince on drums and Chasm Salton on bass. Unbelievable. Prairie and, Prince and Kaz playing together. That's incredible. How fun is that, man? Yeah. Well, I mean, and I know, you know, well, Prairie from the two of played for a year, you know, <laughs> we're we're, uh, we're a little bit um, antsy antsy in the pants because we haven't played in such a long time. I haven't sung a serious gig in a year. Um, and uh, the reason, one of the reasons why we're doing this is because um, I was supposed to be going out on the road terrestrially right around now, right around February. And that tour, which originally was booked last May, and got moved to the summer, then got moved to the fall, then got moved to this February, and now it's been moved to October again. And that would have been like two full years since the last time I toured. And that was the whole idea of that was driving me crazy. Of course. So I figured we have to, you know, we have to reach our audience. We have to reassure ourselves that we can play, you know. And so, so put together this virtual tour and, uh, Oh, how fun, man. That's awesome. I can't wait. I can't wait to hear it. I have to, before we're, we're done, I have to ask you, uh, I have also read Siddhartha multiple times and uh, yeah. uh, there, there aren't that many books I've read multiple times. And what do you think it is about Hess's version of the story that brings you back to it and that is so alive to us? And what is it about, you know, that, that thing that, that matters a lot? Well, I think, you know, anyone who was affected by a by the book, um, which uh, in case you don't know about Siddhartha, uh, Herman Hesse, a Nobel winning author, um, essentially paraphrased the life of Buddha. Yeah. Um, and Buddha or the character Siddhartha in the in the book uh, grows up on a, in a cloistered environment, and is never really confronted with the harsh realities of life. And then suddenly, in like one afternoon or something, it all changes. He sees a sick person, and he's never seen anybody who was sick before. He sees a poor person, you know, someone with no possessions at all living on the street. And he sees a dead person. He has never seen a dead person anymore. And so all of this just eats at him, you know, and destroys his contentment and the upbringing that he had. And he determines within himself that he's going to go out and find the answers for himself. And so the rest of the book is all of his adventures through life. Um, first through like asceticism and denial and, and, uh, and debasement of his body 
and then through the exact opposite. Yes, the pleasures of the, of the, the pleasures of the body. Yeah. Pleasures of the body, you know, and, you know, he just, whatever he does, it all comes back eventually to eat at him. You know, he doesn't understand what it's all about it, whatever it is, the meaning of his life, the meaning of all life, whatever it is, it just constantly eats at him until finally at the end of the book, he realizes that it's all in kind of a sense of resignation, you know, that it just is what it is and you have to stop fighting it and accept it for what it is. And, um, and for a lot of people, and for me, it reflects, you know, your personal journey, you know, suddenly discovering after you leave home, you know, the harsher realities of life. Um, you know, I, no one close to me had ever died, for instance, um, until like I was 19, until I was 19 years old. And then someone that I knew suddenly died. Yes. And it just freaked me out, the whole idea that someone would be there and then suddenly not be there. And that was the first time I had ever confronted death. And, and so the book and the story, more, more importantly, the story that's embodied in the book is, you know, reflects, um, it, it reflected my life in a way. And I think it reflects life for a lot of people when um, you go out into the world and you suddenly discover that Sometimes it doesn't seem fair and you wonder why isn't it fair? You know, what's, yes. what's going on here? And everyone will come up with their own answers. The book does not provide, you know, okay, here's the answer. You know, here's the answer to life. It's just that he finds his answer. And the whole point of it, I guess, is to seek, you know, to not, not just like cover your eyes or crawl under the bed, you know, but to put your face into life to continue to seek, uh, maybe you will find satisfaction, but you know, don't give up on it. Just keep, keep plugging away. That's try awesome. something new. You know, try something different. You know, maybe that'll, maybe that'll lead to you know new knowledge, and um, and eventually some sort of peace. Beautifully said, and I see it reflected in your journey as an artist, and it's clear that. Uh, uh, your journey as an artist, as an artist, is one of you know this kind of uh, constant search for discovery of what makes you feel alive and what you can give in in that way. Um, if you don't know Todd Rudman's work, uh, I mean you do know his work, you, unless you're Andy Partridge, I guess. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> you 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 know his you know his work. Where can people find out about this tour, Todd? How can they get involved and uh, you, you go to nocap n o c a p dot com. Uh, they're essentially the uh, the delivery mechanism and where you can buy tickets and um, they do a number of shows. It's actually a company run by Cisco Adler. He's Lou Adler's son. Lou Adler's kid, yeah. Lou Adler, A&M Records. And he was managing uh, a venue in LA called the Roxy, which I played at quite often. I, uh, uh, back in the 70s, I did like a 10-day stint there. And uh, when the coronavirus hit, you know, you realize they couldn't have, you know, the normal kind of business in their venue. So he came up with um, put together this whole sort of concert streaming paradigm called No Cap. And uh, he's been doing shows since 
since last year. I can't remember when his first show was, but he's been doing shows since then. Got the technology pretty much shook out. We've had to make a few changes for our particular thing because nobody's done this, 25 shows for 25 markets, but... Um, awesome. Yeah, nocap.com. Great, and are you on Twitter? Can people find you on social media or Instagram I, I or are you not? I don't do any of that stuff. Uh, I do have, you know, I've got a Facebook page. I probably have a Twitter account, but I don't do any of that stuff. I don't, I, uh, you know, I had a thing called Patronet back in the 90s, and I discovered very quickly what can go wrong with social media. And I have ever since avoided it like the play. Well, you're always ahead of all the, uh, the, uh, all the technological uh, things. I, I think, um, yeah, there's a whole there's like a whole movie to be made about uh, on one side of the street, you and on the other side of the street, Tom Schultz and the 70s. Both of you guys like, you know, so different. And then so many weird similarities. Um, Todd Rundgren and now all the Todd Rundgren fans are going to kill me for comparing you to Tom Schultz. I just mean that he invented the fucking rock man. That's all. Yeah. Don't <laughs> yell at me. Just I, I get it. Todd's different than Tom Schultz. Hey, Todd, thank you so much for doing this, man. And uh, I can't wait to watch the show. Thanks. Okay.